Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfield, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of discussing the profound analysis and deep insights into the Parsha from my wonderful colleagues at the Pardes Institute. So glad you could join us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, another Parsha podcast. Uh, I realize that even though you're only hearing this about two weeks or three weeks after we're doing it, I say that to let you know that we are, of course, recording it during a time of terrible difficulty and challenge and suffering and fear and just so much happening here in Israel. And it's going to come up because for Torah to be authentic, it has to be coming from our hearts. And I'll introduce my guest in a moment, but I assure you her heart is very much also in that place of grappling and struggling and trying to find strength during this very difficult time. So uh, that is why hopefully by the time you're listening to this, I pray we're in a much different place. But I wanted to let all of you listeners know that that's where we're at. So on that somewhat difficult beginning, I wanna welcome at this point, I think you're more than a repeat performer. You're close to a regular. I'm excited to be joined by my teacher and colleague and friend, Yiska Smith. Welcome, Yiska. Oh, thank you, Svi. Shalom, everyone. And I'll echo what Svi just said, that even though you'll be hearing this in a couple of weeks, to be our authentic selves, teaching authentic Torah, I'm bringing with me and to us to my teacher and colleague and friend, a lot of concern, a lot of pain, a lot of sense of also being blessed that I can take this moment and share Torah with you. Wow, well, that is a good attitude. I'm gonna try to absorb some more of that, Mm. maybe balance out some of my difficulty and negativity. But here we are, we're in Parshat Vayera. We are deep into the story of Avraham. And as we know, Avram's story is not just a historical story of this individual, but of course, we aspire to find in Avram's story messages and teachings and role modeling that we are meant to take with us through our lives for the Jewish people, that Avram is meant to embody somehow the values that the Jewish people are meant to. Actually, he began the traditional phrase, I believe the Ramban, if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I am mistaken, with the Ramban, Nachmanides says that the Ma'asei Avot Siman Lebanim. Right, yeah, Chazal say that, yeah. but Ramban definitely, yeah. Yeah. he uses it, boy, in right. overdrive, right? Yeah. If, if it's happening to them, it's going to be reflected in us. Right, right. So here we get this very almost strange episode, right, where Avram is in the tent, and he's encountering God, and then the narrative shifts. You read the beginning, and you expect then God to be telling him some very important things. And instead, the narrative shifts, and visitors come, and the story moves into something else. So, so Yiska, what do you make of that opening? I can't imagine what it would be like to be in this high conscious with the high vibrations of being one-on-one with the divine. And as immersed as I am in that moment of this intimate connection with the divine, I happen to notice what looks like three human beings standing near me that may need food and drink. Yeah, how does he even know they're there? And what does it mean God's appearing to him? Yeah, it's very strange. Right, it's not, uh, it's not black and white. There's a lot of color to it. There's a lot of also ambiguity to it. And that's what the rabbis love because the rabbis take that ambiguity and strive to pull out of it, 
to draw out of it, to unpack some clarity. And in that, we see that they've come up with two basic different trends of how they understand this moment. Because it says in the verse, Avraham says, Adonai, my Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, please do not depart from your servant. Well, who is he talking to when he says, Adonai? I never thought about that. In other words, he could be saying, God, stick, stick with me. But I'm going to go take care of something, but but don't go away. Don't go be away. right back. Which, of course, is also mind-blowing that one says to God, can you hold on a minute? I've got to take care of something, but I really want to finish our conversation. Which Rabbi Sachs addresses. It's holy chutzpah. Ah, in other words, that he had the daring to actually say, God, you got to wait because i got to go take care of something else. And they happen to be your people, not my people. You created them. I didn't create them. You created them to be hungry. You created them to be tired. So what do I do with this? You left me with a problem or a responsibility, or a God. Responsibility. Obviously, I got to go take care of it. So then he runs over to the three. Doesn't wait for God to say, oh, by the way, I'm not going anywhere. I'll stay put. He says this, and then he runs over to the three, what looks like men. We don't know yet that they're angels. But he may be saying Adonai to the leader of the three because it was customary in those times to say, my Lord. He could be saying lowercase l rather than uppercase l. Oh, my Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, please don't depart from your servant. Allow me to help you. So it's really interesting. Either this is a moment of Avram very visibly giving up, if you want to say, on his own spiritual moment with God to do this other task of taking care of other people, or what you're suggesting is, he didn't even ask permission for that. He's already out of the tent, and, and he's already speaking and, and addressing with this incredible ambiguity of the word Adonai, of which Lord he's talking to, and in theory addressing a human being with the ultimate word of respect or reverence that he could find. And this is why in the Talmud, Masechet Shabbat 127a, this is where we learn, greater is hospitality than receiving the divine presence. Because Avram did it. Because he did He it. chose. He, he actually had a choice. And that's a perfect example of the deeds of the fathers are assigned for the children. Why do I know it's so important? Instead of spending another 20 minutes meditating, another 20 minutes davening, another 20 minutes learning, I could take that one hour and I could make a chicken soup for some of my students at Bardes. So and I'm sure they'd appreciate it that, by the way. But this is not an invitation for all of you to call up Yiska and ask for chicken soup. It was just an example. Uh, <laughs> I wish you all would. She, and actually she does. That's the amazing thing. But I want to come back to that just for a moment. Why would one think otherwise? Let's just think. Let's imagine the person who's having a profound spiritual moment. What goes in their mind to say, you know what? I know there's people to take care of, but I need to finish where I'm at first. The thirst, the quest, the search to have a real moment with our Creator. So it's very interesting what you're suggesting, which I think has the potential of being a very sharp warning in a way, that our legitimate search or desire for deep spiritual connection with God can create a disconnect between us and the other people around us. And that's a warning sign. That's a warning sign. Do we have time for me to share a short story? We would love to hear a short story. A friend of mine lives in Nachlaot, was in Svat many years ago visiting for Shabbat with her husband, who has since passed away. May he rest in peace. And she's walking around 
doing some shopping and this backpacker woman comes up to her, a young, looking like one of those travelers. Right. And she, she went up to my friend and she said, you look like the type of person that could answer my question. What's your question? If I can help, of course I will. I'm in Sfat. I read this is where the mystics were. This is where Kabbalah comes from. Where can I get a mystical experience? She said, you really want a mystical experience? Yes. I came all the way from the United States. I want to have a real experience of God. She said, go down that street, make your first left, first right. Don't even knock at the door. Just open the door. There's a woman who just got back from the hospital with her seventh newborn. The dishes are piled high in the sink. The place is a mess. The laundry has to be folded. The kids need to be given attention to. You're there to help her. She said, no, I want a spiritual experience. I want an experience of God. She said, you want an experience of God? And then she gave this as the example. You really want to see God in your life? Go help another human being. You know, it reminds me, Rabbi Mital Zetzal's favorite story to tell was that uh, the Balatanya was learning, and in an adjacent room, his son was learning, and the next room next to that, the infant grandchild was learning, and the baby was crying. And the Balatanya's son was so involved with his learning, he didn't hear the baby cry. And the Balatanya came to his son and said, God forbid your involvement in your learning should ever prevent you from hearing a child cry. There you go. And so I think it's, it's interesting. We, know, we, we like to believe that these things naturally feed each other, but you're suggesting is that they don't. That in fact, it doesn't happen automatically that our spiritual search yields to taking care of other people, but you're saying it takes conscious effort on our part to connect those two things. Yeah, well, it's cultivating an awareness which is why I'd like to offer a third alternative, because the two that we look at initially position us in an either-or position. But there is a third approach, and this is where Hasidut, actually the Lubavitcher Rebbe, shared this teaching, that in fact, Avraham was talking to God. But he didn't say, God, if I have found favor in your eyes, stay here, don't depart from me, because I need to go there. What he was saying is, God, we both know I have to take care of them. Please come with me. Wow. Please come with me because you created them also. And I, as long as I can see you in them, then you haven't left me. Wow. So the ambiguity is intentional. Yes. He's talking to God and yes. the other person because the godliness in the other person is part of who he's that's talking right. to. And that's what he came to teach us. So what do you think that means? I don't know if this went to a departure, but what do you think that means practically in terms of our own spiritual practice, in terms of how we try to integrate all those things to help us look inward to maintain our looking outward? That question opens up the reason I support cultivating mindfulness. When I leave my home every day, I offer a prayer to God, help me see God in other people. When I get on that crowded Egged bus, when I'm waiting on line in the Makolet, in the supermarket, and people are pushing and shoving and yelling, please, please help me continue to see you in them. It's a practice. We call it Avodah Ruchanit. It's a spiritual practice. It's work. Are you ever disappointed that it doesn't come naturally? I won't put this on you. I'll put this on me and then you can decide. I am frustrated when I don't see, in myself as well, that I can learn a daf of Gemara with great intensity 
and still lose my temper 10 minutes later. I can pray a service with real concentration and then 15 minutes later totally ignore uh, somebody else's needs. And I ask myself all the time, why isn't it automatic? Why don't the tools of our divine search or divine encounter, why don't they automatically make me a person of greater chesed? Because if they did, you might not think you need God. Oh, you got to say more now. About okay. That. One of my teachers, Rabbi Sholem Brat, may his memory be for a blessing, asks the question, why were we created with needs? Like, I need to eat, I need to sleep, I need to eliminate waste, I need to procreate. Why do I have all these needs? Yeah, what a waste of time all these things Exactly. God could have created me. Instead of needing to eat, I could have needed not to eat. Right. If instead of needing to eliminate waste, there is no waste to eliminate. Like, the way we are created physically manifests also a spiritual reality. What's the spiritual reality that we see in the physical? If I didn't need, then I would not be compassionate to another person who does need. So thank God I have food on my table. I may feel hungry, but at that moment, I don't have to eat. I want to eat. What about people who are not blessed the way I am? How, how do they feel? For me to feel even that I need to eat, not that I'm starving, I have more sensitivity to a person who's hungry to a person who doesn't have proper clothing in the winter, to a person who doesn't have a roof over their head. It sensitizes me. The other part, though, to this is now I know I need God. And we see this in this week's Parsha. Actually, listeners, I meant you're, we're in the Parsha here. Right, we know. We're, oh, we're a couple weeks be, we're uh, a couple behind weeks, you still. Right. Right. In the, we learn in the beginning, in Parshat Bereshit, what was the punishment for the snake, for the serpent. The serpent was given the punishment, you'll have to crawl on your belly the rest of your life. So the rabbis say, how is that a punishment? Wherever the serpent goes, there's food. Right, that's true. (laughs) It's close to the source. Right, he doesn't have to even move legs. It's just right there. So the punishment is, he'll never need God. And so here we are with our needs, meant to remind us how much we need God. And what comes out of what you're saying is that in a way, our spiritual practices can trick us into believing that I don't need God. I can get there on my own. I don't really need help. I've got prayer. I've got Torah study. I've got everything I quote unquote need. So in a way, I am using these spiritual practices to avoid, or I could use them that way. I want to be careful to avoid that sense of genuine need. They console me. They give me this sense of control. I can be spiritual whenever I want to. And in that sense of control, I'm going to lose the awareness of both my profound need, which is scary to feel my own needs, and make me aware of the needs of others all at the same time. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov calls this dimyon shav. It's a false illusion. So the answer to your question earlier, how can you learn a daf of Gemara so clearly with the Rishonim, with the Achonim, and then 10 minutes later lose your temper? <laughs> because God On a won't... daily basis, I guess I should add. <laughs> I'm just quoting you. I'm not saying that... I, oh, that you, you can say it. <laughs> it's God's way of saying, Tzvi, even though I gave you a wonderful mind and a wonderful heart, I want to remind you, you cannot do all of this on your own. You know, but what's I think even more profoundly <laughs> challenging when you say that is that we normally think of using the material world 
to assert our control and prevent that feeling of need, right? If I amass enough wealth, if I amass enough power, if I amass enough kavod, I'll be safe because I can make the world work the way I want it to work. And here you're expanding it and saying you can actually enter that false illusion through your own spiritual perception. Absolutely. That's the trap. And so you cultivate the awareness, you're saying, just by constant reminders. I just finished a class right here at Pardes quoting Rav Cook when he's examining his own shortcomings or the potential to fall into the trap of what could be shortcomings. And then he asks, me, Odea, who knows how to get out of this? And he said, I don't have enough strength to do it on my own, only by reaching out to God. I just taught that now. Wow. And so here you have then Avram, and perhaps it's significant, he doesn't have a son yet, or at least not through Sarah. He is still in a place of deep need. Right? And even though he's got tents and he's got his wealth or whatever it is, he's in a place of profound need. He's in this covenant, but he hasn't seen the benefits of this covenant yet, at least not through the one thing he wants most in the world, and that is having a child with Sarah. And so maybe that is what enables him to reach out to these other travelers, because he is plugged into his own needs, and his encounter with God doesn't desensitize him to that. Exactly. To the point where, according to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, He's including, he's not breaking away from this encounter. He wants the whole encounter to include these three people. And so he's connected both horizontally and vertically Vertically. all the time. And what you're saying, the bigger chidush is, it's all God. It's all God. It's God, the vertical, transcendent, and it's God, the imminent, engaged in other people. Yes, I like that, the transcendent with the imminence. And that leaves me with the problem today. I would imagine... Please, tell us the problem. Theologically, part of the pain that I'm experiencing, the, the difficulty, the, the shock, the trauma, is I don't see these people creating the image of God. These terrorists. I don't have to repeat to the listeners everything that they've done. We all know what they've done. My problem is, God, help me see you in them. But if I see you in them, then you're not the God I believe in. I'm in a real paradox here. Because if God is there, then how could God be associated with something so evil? What? And if God's not there, what does it mean that human beings can lose their divinity? Yeah, what does that mean? Okay, so what's the answer? We're all waiting. Uh, take who? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> take I think who? That, that the horror here is this sense that such evil can exist. And I'm surprised at myself in a way. It's not like I haven't read of the history, and I know about the Shoah, and yet somehow I find myself stunned and shocked and really depressed over this sense that here we are in this country and we are surrounded, it feels like, by genuine evil. And I'm left also wondering, what are we going to do? And how can that be? And how can that type of evil exist? And where is God in this world? And all these other very difficult questions. So what do you do to keep yourself strong? What are your tools? The first tool is I keep asking. I don't deny me, my own doubt. This is actually from Rav Soloveitchik. I learned that years ago from Rav Soloveitchik to honor doubt, the lonely man of faith, mm-hmm. which initially when it was published, the rabbis were not waiting online to buy the first copy. Oh, interesting. <laughs> they, interesting. they pushed back on him that he would even hold sacred space for doubt. And his response was, how can you really believe in God and not doubt? Right. Right. So 
but the PSS and the Rebbe, who is my Rebbe, that I draw most of my spiritual inspiration from, he really does acknowledge, and we see this in Eish Kodesh, which he wrote during the, the Holocaust in Warsaw from 1939 to 1943. He believes that there is real darkness in the world. There's real evil in the world. And it's only, only by me acknowledging that instead of running away from it or denying it that I can then pull out the light. And we see that again in the Parsha of Genesis of Bereshit. When in the very, very beginning, when it says there was darkness, and after the darkness it says, and God said, let there be light. So the Nitivot Shalom, the Slanam Rebbe, who passed away not that long ago here in Yerushalayim in 2000, asks the question, why does the verse have to tell us what preceded light? We know what preceded light, darkness. That's why God said, let there be light. He said, because light only has meaning when it comes from the darkness. It's not that there was darkness over here and now there'll be light over here. In the very place where it's dark, that gives birth to light. And we know the light, when God said, let there be light, was not the light of the sun and the moon. That came several days later. This is the news inside of us, the light of our soul, of awareness. We learn in Mishlei, in Proverbs, Ner Hashem Nishmat Adam, the light of God is the soul of the person. That's the light that was created from a place of darkness. So what do I do? I acknowledge God. I'm living in darkness right now. My 20-year-old granddaughter is right now risking her life in one of the most dangerous bases in Zikim, right by the border, as an officer in search and rescue. I'm so proud of her, and I'm worried, worried so much. I'm worried sick about her about her well-being, and then by extension, everybody else. So there's a lot of darkness there. And my work comes from believing within the darkness I can extract the light. You know, I think for me, it, it connected to two other things you said, <clears throat> that number one, maybe we don't want to acknowledge darkness or evil, because it, again, it shakes our whole sense of living in a world that we can control and manage yes. and expect. And suddenly we realize that there are, I'll use this word, forces in the world that not only we can't comprehend them, and they feel overwhelming, and it's terrifying. And maybe we just want to keep that awareness away as often as we can. And here we are. I'm personally forced to confront it, and I don't have the tools. And it's very strange as somebody who teaches Torah and has been in this world for so long, there's something even scarier to me that I have not built up the tools to really deal with this. And it's instead made me feel very fearful and numb. And I think the other thing that you said that's hard for me is to see the light. You know, I'm not seeing light. And uh, I'm wondering what tools do you suggest if I wanna somehow still see some light? What I would suggest, because I am seeing some light, is to first of all, believe you can see light. You have to have the emuna. What's the phrase? It says in the book of Habukkuk, he came and established the main principle of all the mitzvot, that a tzaddik lives in his emunat, right. right? If we don't have faith, we can't, one on one is two, that, you can't apply that kind of logic to this. If that's what you're expecting me or wanting me to answer in that framework of probability, I can't, because then I'm where you are. I'll ask the same question. The way I try to answer it is with possibility, not probability. And that brings the heart into this narrative. And the heart entertains possibilities. 
So I want to believe, I really do, Tzvi, I want to believe that somehow, if God created light from darkness, that God has given me the ability, the capacity, to somehow see some light in darkness, because I'm created in the Creator's image. It's very powerful. It's both powerful and scary to me, because I don't know if I can get there, and I want to get there. Well, look at the students at Pardes, what they've done in this week, creating all these care packages, coming together with the unity, my three and four-year-old drawing pictures, accompanying their teenage older sisters with the cookies. We know what happens when we're attacked from the outside. We forget our, our sibling rivalry, and we band together as a family. You know, it's interesting coming back to Avram, right, that he's the example of Emunah precisely because he has to live with the faith in this covenant. He doesn't live to see the results of this great nation. Uh, and in fact, that Rashi that has God scolding Moshe, Moshe says, how could you put them in this situation, Parshat Va'era, as opposed to Va'era? And God tells him, you're complaining? The, the forefathers didn't complain, and they didn't see a, a tiny bit of what you're going to get to see. And that's why I really believe when we pray, it's my gain Avraham, not my gain Moshe. Oh, right, yep. because Avram and the Avot are, are symbol, and the Imahot, of course, are symbols of people who, I think, as you just said in a very articulate way, they live with emunah, which is not living with facts, which is not living with a scientific proof of what's going to be, but an emunah that I guess sometimes, even in the face of all the other logic in the world, allows them to hold on to believe that there is an optimistic, positive future and this covenant is going to be fulfilled. It has to be. That's what our emuna is. Well, I can't think of a more positive way to finish. I will say this in front of you, Scott. I hope and pray I get to where you are. That would be a tremendous gift. And I hope all of you even if all of us can just take a little bit of what Yiska was offering, I think it challenges us because ultimately, Yiska said, the responsibility is on us to choose this path. It's not going to be handed to us. But she's also proving that it's possible that an emunah and the godliness of this world and the godliness of the people around us is possible. And out of the terrible darkness that we're seeing, indeed, there's more light out there that's going to come. Amen. May it come to be. King you hear us? Amen. <laughs> and when it happens, we're going to have you back and you can say, look, you see, <laughs> you see, it was all coming. So on that note, I want to thank all of you, of course, for listening. And I want to thank Yiska again for combining both challenge and insight. And for myself personally, a certain amount of comfort in these very, very difficult times. So our hope and our prayer together is by the time you're listening to this, more of that light will have Emerge. I so hope so. Amen. Amen. So to all of you, a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. And Shabbat. join us next week. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.